0: This is Pastor James Guyo, and welcome to Berean Sovereign Grace Church in Westerville, Ohio. We are a Sovereign Grace teaching ministry, and you can visit our website, www.salvationinchristalone.com to hear more of our messages, and also go to soundcloud.com and search for James Guyo, my last name is Is spelled G-U-Y-O, or you can search Berean Sovereign, just Berean Sovereign, and you will see our messages there also. May the Lord bless your hearing, and may he serve you for his sake, for Christ's sake, and for the sake of his gospel. And now to our gospel teaching. Okay, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to worship you again this morning as your people that you gave to Christ, redeemed by Christ, sanctified by your spirit, sanctified by your truth. We pray, Lord, that you continue to sanctify us by your truth and your word is truth. I pray, Lord, for help to speak that which is true about you and your son and that which he has done or did and is doing to save his people and to bring them to himself. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the scriptures and open even our minds that we may see what it is that says the Lord. We pray and we thank you, Lord, for the blessing of coming again and spending time in your word, and learning about Jesus. Lord, we just ask for your blessing upon our worship service and our teaching. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John 10. John 10, verses 10 to 13. We are not going to go very far today. John records for us these words of the Lord Jesus Christ. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The Word of the Lord. And the sermon title is The Good Shepherd and the Gospel. The Good Shepherd and the gospel the good shepherd and substitution the good shepherd and substitution the majority of the professing church teaches and believes a false gospel because they misrepresent and depreciate the person of christ and his work and consequently make a hireling out of Jesus. And they misrepresent him not because they do not have Bibles to read. They read their Bibles and I think they understand what God is saying about Jesus and salvation. They just don't agree with his way of doing things. A sinful man We just don't agree with God's method of salvation. I do not believe that people do not understand sovereign grace teaching. I think they do. It just rubs them the wrong way. How could they disagree with something that they don't understand? They have to understand what that is saying for them to disagree with it. The terms of salvation, the terms of grace, make sinners feel itchy and irritable. And so they strive with the Lord because of the offense of the cross. The cross is the most offensive message that God has given sinners. It is the most offensive message that a sinner will ever hear because it pertains to their everlasting standing with God. And so it becomes a rock of stumbling when God comes and says, Oh, by the way, it has nothing to do with what you bring. It has all to do with me and what my son brings. The cross is offensive because it makes nothing of man's self-righteousness. It makes nothing of man's contribution. It strikes at the very heart of sinful man. It strikes at the pride of man. It makes nothing of the glory of man and makes everything about the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And sinful men do not like it when they are not given an important role to play. We want God to rewrite the script of salvation and give us more important roles to play. We want to be the leading actors and actresses. But salvation by its very nature means the one who needs saving is unable to play any important or significant role because they are not able to do so, they are enslaved to sin, they are dead in trespasses and sin, and unfortunately all the important roles of salvation were taken up by Jesus. We are an eternity late to the party, and so people try to change the terms of Or remove the offense by reducing the strength of Jesus. If Jesus is strong, then they are weak. And sinners do not want to be weak. Sinners do not want a strong Jesus. They want to be strong that their power may be shown in Jesus' weakness. His weakness to not be able to serve them completely. And to the uttermost. Sinners want a Jesus who is strong in protecting against hunger, against disease, against earthquakes, against mass shootings, but not one who is strong in salvation. And so they dilute him like Kool Aid. Just add a little bit more water to Jesus by saying, Oh, by the way, God loves everyone, and so salvation cannot be in what God says about Christ. It has to come down to what we say about Christ. We have to make the decision for Christ that we may complete salvation. And what God has to say does not matter at all. We will not let this man to rule over us, they say. Like Pharaoh, they say, who is the Lord that we should Worship him. And so sinners are not satisfied with the statements and the claims of Jesus. About his own sufficiency and his aloneness in the work of salvation. The aloneness of Jesus. Jesus alone. The Jesus only highway. The Jesus only lane. That is the lane of the gospel. There's one gospel of salvation, not two, not three, not five hundred. And it is either we are proclaiming this one or we are teaching and holding to a false hope. And God will not honor a false gospel about his son when he has spoken about him clearly. God will not honor a false gospel. So as I said, sinners change the gospel of grace because we do not like the terms. The terms of grace are too humbling because grace says you contribute nothing to the work of salvation. And that means you come with nothing before him to hear about your standing in all of eternity. And that makes people scared. It makes people scared to come before a holy and righteous God with nothing in their hands. And guess what is convenient? Works are convenient because they are within the reach of sinful men. So they drag them along, hoping that God would give them life based on that. But that's not how God works. People will not refuse free money. There's no one who will ever say no to free money. There's no one who will ever say, I'm not having that free pension at work. I'm not having that match, the 401k match at work. No one will ever say, no, don't give it to me. But they will not accept free salvation. They will not accept free salvation from God. But the terms of salvation are such that no sinner will boast before his presence. And this was not an afterthought of God. That is the natural and eternal thought of God. God knows his people. And even more, God knows himself. He knows that he is the holy one. He is the righteous one. He knows he is the glorious one, the majestic one, the honorable one. And he will not share his glory with any of his creatures. But God did not come up with the plan of salvation after the fall. As a matter of fact, to say salvation is a plan is wrong. Salvation is not a plan. God does not plan. Rather, he purposes. He purposes. As human beings, we plan to increase the possibility of getting out the desired outcome of what we intend to do. And in doing so, we make contingent measures for unforeseen circumstances. We plan so that we may not fail because we are not in control of all the different Factors we are not in control of our environment we do not have perfect knowledge perfect power perfect wisdom so there is a good chance that things will not go according to our plan but god does not plan like man because he is not a man god is not a supersized man or angel he is god all by himself And so he purposes to accomplish his good pleasure in all things and all the time because there's nothing that frustrates his will. No one can say to him, what are you doing? Whatever he wills, that is what he does. And Job will tell us and say in Job 23, verse 18, but he is unique. And who can make him change? Who can turn him? Listen to this. And whatever he so desires, that he does. Whatever he so desires, that he does. So everything that has happened and that will ever happen is because God desired it to happen. And it will happen according to God's purpose. And God's purpose is his glory in Christ Jesus. Listen to Ephesians 1. We're going to be reading just a few more verses from Ephesians chapter 1. But skip over to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5. Where Apostle Paul says, Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. That sounds like what Job just said. Whatever he so desires, that he does. Apostle Paul says, according to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians 1, 7-11 In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, listen to this, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. The good pleasure of God, God's sovereign will, was purposed in himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ Christ but which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. So when God is working all things, he consults his will. <laughs> he does not consult the counsel of the angels. He does not consult the counsel of men. Ephesians 3, 8 to 11. Apostle Paul writes and says, To me, we am less than the least of all the saints, This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. According to the eternal purpose, not purposes. According to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in the person of Jesus. The eternal purpose of God is in Christ and is accomplished in Christ and he accomplished it in Christ. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know, Apostle Paul is not giving an opinion. He says we know. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the code according to his purpose according to his purpose. Isaiah forty-six ten to 11. Isaiah says, Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bed of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel, From a far country, indeed I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. That sounds like a sovereign God. (laughs) So for us to understand the gospel, for us to understand what God is working, we need to understand the purpose of God. The purpose of God is always in Christ. The purpose of God is always in Christ, which means God works and sees all things in and through the person of Jesus Christ. In him, all things hold. In him, all things consist. And God's purpose is not some objective for the year. It's not a five-year plan. It's not a ten-year plan. God's purpose is an eternal purpose, according to Ephesians 3.11, according to the eternal purpose. It is an eternal purpose, therefore it cannot be frustrated. It cannot be undone in time. In God's eternal purpose, God is justifying and is expressing His existence as God. You would not know that God is God outside His eternal purpose. It is in His eternal purpose that He demonstrates Himself to be God to all His creatures. And this eternal purpose is expressed in God's work of salvation in Christ jesus the gospel is god's eternal purpose and was the only way that he could bring sinners to himself the gospel was the only way that you ever be able to see god and this eternal purpose was directed towards the redemption not of some sea lions not some penguins Not some endangered animal species. Not angels, but in the salvation of sinful men. God's eternal purpose centered around the passion of Christ, around sinful men. God does not give help to fallen angels. In Hebrews 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, the writer of Hebrews says, For indeed, he does not give aid, that is, give help, to angels. God does not help angels. The fallen angels, God does not help. But he does give help to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Christ had to be made like us. That he may give aid to us. Christ was not made like an angel. Jesus is not like an angel. And my friends, you and I could have been created as one of the fallen angels. God does not help the fallen angels. God does not redeem the fallen angels, he has not provided a way of redemption for them, and that was his eternal purpose. And you and I could have been created to become one of the fallen angels and would not have any hope whatsoever. Hope does not exist in the vocabulary of fallen angels. Redemption, justification, are foreign ways to them. So praise the Lord who determined to make us redeemable by the blood of his son. And the blood of Christ was his eternal purpose for us. And so whatever Christ did was God's eternal purpose. Creation, the fall of Adam and the new creation are all God's eternal purpose ...in Christ and not in Adam. If one's theology does not make Christ preeminent in all things... ...then it is false by default. God's eternal purpose was not in Adam. It was in Christ Jesus. And it doesn't matter how high-sounding the teaching is... ...as long as it does not make Christ preeminent in all things then it is not true teaching. And so God does not plan as to have a contingent plan just in case man upset and outsmart his moves. God is not a chess player. He does not play the game of chase with anybody. He has the whole game rigged. He has rigged everything according to the purpose of his will, everything is going to go exactly the way that God has determined it to be. And I said, God has not purposes, but a purpose. He has a single purpose. He only has one end in all his work, his glory in Christ. And so everything flows from this purpose and from this person called Jesus. The honoring and exaltation of his son is God's eternal purpose. I said earlier, God's purpose is from eternity. It is an eternal counsel. And that means it is from his own mind. Therefore, he is not waiting on sinful men to approve it. God has never had a suggestion box and does not have a whistleblower hotline. Whatever humans do is to the fulfillment of that eternal purpose. If anything exists in this universe, it is a servant of accomplishing God's eternal purpose. In Christ oh I wish the church would understand this and maybe they'll speak less foolishness everything in this universe exists for the purpose of God in Christ the fall of Adam was God's purpose and the eternal purpose of God centers around it centers on the person and work of Christ and it centers on his work of redemption So the cross is very central to God's eternal purpose. We are working our way towards the good shepherd giving his life. And we won't understand the significance of what that means unless we draw back and have some eternal view to what God is working in the person of Christ. So redemption is a work of the second creation. The redemption by Christ Jesus is the work of God of the second creation. It is a work of the new birth. If you know this, and you should know this by now, it is only God who can create. Creation is a work of God alone, and redemption is recreation. It is the creation of the new man in Christ Jesus. Right? Redemption is the work of recreation of the new man in Christ Jesus. And because of that, men do not help in their own recreation. A child does not help in their own conception. We do not help in our own birth. So we do not help God in the creation of the new man After Jesus, it is God who does that work. And Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is God doing the work of redeeming the old creation in Adam and making the new, and this is God's eternal purpose. And as long as you do not center your understanding of all things on Jesus and his glory, You are bound to say a lot of useless things, even if you are quoting from the Bible. And so when a supposed preacher of the gospel comes and says one can lose salvation, it means they do not know what they are talking about. They have the wrong starting point. If you have the wrong starting point, you are also going to have a wrong conclusion. Salvation cannot be lost because it is work that is according to the eternal purpose and counsel of God. And no one can frustrate the counsel and eternal purpose of God in Christ. God says, Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. If anything is purposed by God in Christ, then it can not be undone by the will and power of a creature, any creature, not the devil, not you, not your friends, not your neighbors. It is impossible. How can a sinner come and frustrate an eternal purpose of God? Tell me how one can do that. How does one who does not know what the eternal purpose of God is frustrated? Are they going to break in into God's house and steal the blueprint and burn it? Are they going to steal Jesus' passport and hide it and make it impossible for him to go back to heaven? Did not the Roman soldiers try to guard Jesus' tomb? that he may not come out, and that if he did, they would kill him. And guess what happened? He came out in their very presence, but they did not see him. Was that not trying to frustrate God's eternal purpose? They were trying to frustrate. They were gathered together to frustrate God's eternal purpose. Jonah tried to frustrate God's eternal purpose, and guess where he ended up? Exactly where God's eternal purpose determined for him to go, Nineveh. How are we to frustrate the work of salvation in Christ Jesus? Which work God purposed from eternity to accomplish in Christ and has accomplished in him? I just need to know this because I don't know where the preachers are getting this from. The professing church world is preaching Such a message that God's eternal purpose can be frustrated. How someone who showed up a few decades ago now has power to remove themselves from the eternal purpose of God is beyond my understanding. You see the church says Jesus can fail to bring to the father those that the father gave to him. What kind of Jesus are they talking about? It can't be the Jesus of the Bible. And how can one profess to be a preacher of the gospel and preach such a useless savior? How can Jesus lose these people that the Father gave to him according to his eternal purpose? How do they get themselves out from it? And many will say, it is a mystery. Or it is a paradox. With with our minds, with our pea-sized brains, we never understand this. Listen, there's no mystery and there's no paradox. God's eternal purpose is very clear and it cannot be frustrated. And it will not be delayed because he has to glorify himself. Everything happens in his appointed season, and time according as God has purposed. And let's hear from someone who understood this. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. John 12, 27 and 28. He says, Now my soul is troubled, and why shall I say, Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And and if you still remember, I think it's in Luke 22, 22. The Lord said of Judas, the son of man goes as has been appointed for him. Appointed for him by who? By God. When? From eternity. According to God's eternal purpose. So Jesus says, the hour has come. The hour that you appointed from eternity has come. The hour of my humiliation and glorification on the cross has come. And he says, for this purpose, I came to this hour. That's glorious stuff. I'm telling you, this is stuff that makes me happy. (laughs) And so the cross of Jesus was the hour that God appointed from eternity. The cross of Jesus was not plan B after the fall. The hour of Jesus' glorification was God's eternal purpose from before the foundation of the world. And so the eternal purpose of God was to bring many sons to himself. In Christ. And so he put them in Christ Jesus. And in the appointed time. Jesus came to bring those children to God by his work of redemption. And it is these that the father gave him that he calls to himself. And he calls them individually and by name. How did he know their names? He did not steal their birth certificates from the social security office. It is he who wrote down their names in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. And so all the sheep have their names not from their parents but from God. You see God gave a people to Christ and these people have names. Then guess who named them? (laughs) It is God who named the people before they existed. (laughs) So all the sheep have their names not from their parents but from God. You see, your name that you have right now has to match with the name that is in the book of life. And the book of life was written before you were born. Before the foundation of the world. And so it's not your parents who named you first. It's God who named you first. So when your parents were naming you. They were just working God's eternal purpose. And so this great shepherd of the sheep has come to call his own to himself. He comes in time because you and I exist in time. So he comes in time to call his own to himself, these that the Father gave to him according to the eternal purpose of God. And when the sheep have been called, they come because they are made willing. They come because they know his voice. They come because he gives them the power to come. He enables them to recognize the voice of the shepherd and not of the stranger. And this shepherd is the good shepherd. He comes not through the back door. He does not come with gimmicks and marketing techniques to entice the sheep to himself. No. When they hear the voice of the shepherd, they come. That's what Jesus said. They recognize the voice of the shepherd and they follow him and the voice of the shepherd is the gospel of grace god calls him god calls his people to himself by the preaching of the gospel so don't get surprised when god pulls you out from some congregation that you thought was the church and did not have the gospel what is actually happening is that god has called you to himself and by the way The Greek word for church is ecclesia. It means the called out ones. The called out ones. So God calls his people to himself by the preaching of the gospel. And Jesus said the voice of a stranger they will not heed and they will not follow. And there are many voices of strangers trying to call God's sheep to themselves. But the Lord said. The true ship will not fall for it. They will not fall for it. The voice of strangers. May sound like they are saying the gospel. But they are not. The strangers are the thieves and robbers. They call that you may be prayed to them. They have nothing for you. And Jesus said. When he does the calling. When Jesus does the calling, his sheep will come to him. And he left us with no room, no other room for the sheep to wander again as to be lost from the truth when they have been called. And this is why once you know the truth and you try to go back to all these places that you used to think were church, you just don't find the place right anymore because you just don't believe what they are saying that's not the voice that you have been hearing the master has actually called you so his sheep hear him and they will hear him because it is him calling and according to jesus there are many voices that are trying to entice the sheep and many people are chasing after many voices and the issue of salvation is not whether you are hearing voices. According to Jesus, everyone is hearing voices. The question is, whose voice, whose voices are they hearing and following? The issue is not whether one goes to church or whether they are baptized. It does not matter what people say of you, good or bad, the issue Is whether Jesus has actually called you to himself and you are hearing his voice, the voice of the gospel. And this is a very serious matter of salvation. Being dipped or sprinkled by the water is not what constitutes hearing the voice of the shepherd. Works righteousness And not the voice of the shepherd. The voice of the shepherd says. This is the work of God. To believe in the one whom God has sent. And Jesus does not speak with different voices. He is not a ventriloquist. A ventriloquist is one who can change their voice. And speak in multiple tones. He speaks clearly. Jesus speaks clearly and audibly to his sheep so that they may hear him and follow him. Jesus said, the sheep hear his voice. They recognize his voice and they follow him. And that means they believe what Jesus says. And my friends, there are many who have not yet heard from the shepherd. The word of the Lord has become rare in our time as in the days of samuel if you still remember in first samuel 3 verse 7 it says now samuel did not yet know the lord nor was the word of the lord yet revealed to him and yet samuel ministered in the tabernacle day and night and even slept in the tabernacle and yet god had not yet spoken to him and it was just as it is in our time There are many people in the church, ministering in the church, but have not yet heard from the Son of God. When the shepherd calls, one has to believe the voice of the shepherd, and that is the voice of the gospel of grace. Jesus said, they will hear it, and he left us with no middle ground, no neutral position. And people who deny the gospel of free and sovereign grace are not following the voice and the leading of the shepherd, but they are following the voices of the thieves and robbers, the voice of strangers. The thieves and robbers also have church buildings and they have baptismals and they take offerings and they also sing some hymns. Even sometimes they can sing amazing grace but they have not the voice of the good shepherd and so the sheep are mugged by their believing of the true gospel the sheep are mugged they are separated by believing the true gospel of God's grace and when the shepherd calls out the sheep the shepherd is irresistible The call of the shepherd is irresistible. His sheep have to come. They have to receive the truth. It's not optional. It is inevitable. If we belong to him, we shall come to the knowledge of truth. And the same applies to our children. If it is God's eternal purpose for them to be found in Christ, they are coming. And they do not come because of us, but in spite of us. And that should be a source of encouragement and not of despair. Because you're going to fail. And then what? And if the coming of the children to Christ depends on your effort that has already failed, what hope do you have? But you have much greater hope if God's eternal purpose is to bring them to Christ. They'll come. And people despair when they realize they have come to the end of their own power and resources to change things. And that is exactly how salvation works, children. At some point in your life, things are going to get bad. It does not mean God has forsaken you. It means God is calling you to himself. You have to come at some point to the end of yourself. Why? Because Jesus does not accept anyone who comes to him as one among other options. When you're coming to Jesus, he is the only option. You don't come to Jesus to try out Jesus as one among 5, 10, 15 options. It does not work like that. All those that hear his voice come to him knowing that he is the only option and the only true shepherd. And many people are still having options by which to approach God by. But God will not accept them because they are failing to understand what it means for Jesus to be the good shepherd. The good shepherd who has given his life for the life of the sheep. So what does that mean when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd? The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. We have to understand what that means in respect of the eternal purpose of God. Because if we understand that, then we are, of all people, the most blessed. So the Lord here in this part of John He expands his teaching by giving an explanation as to what he meant in the opening statements. He said, He is the good shepherd, not just a shepherd. He is not a shepherd among many other potentially good shepherds. Rather, He stands out from among all the pretend shepherds. He is The good shepherd. The only one of his kind. But the Lord explains for us what he means by being a good shepherd. By what he actually does. So he defines what that means for us. A shepherd would take the sheep to the pastures. And made sure that he watered them and also gave them rest. But Jesus has already talked to this. He has already talked about leading the sheep into the pastures and giving them life abundantly. And of course, the abundant life is not what the prosperity gospel preachers are preaching. The abundant life is not paying off your mortgage in two years or getting a free car. That's not what this is about. The abundant life is to possess the life and the everlasting righteousness of Christ. The abundant life is to possess the life of Christ and the everlasting righteousness of Christ. But now Jesus expands and says, Guess what? I am the good shepherd, and as the good shepherd, he gives his life for the sheep. So the ultimate measure of the quality. And the worth of this shepherd is in what they are willing to give or to give up. Romans 5-7. Apostle Paul says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man Someone would even dare to die. See what that is saying. People will not even die for a good man. People will not just say, okay, you kill me. Don't kill him. You you, you kill me instead. They will not do that for a thief. And they will not do it for someone who is righteous. And so the Apostle Paul argues from the lesser to the greater and says, see what Christ has done for you. You were enemies of God. You were ungodly. You were sinners. You were unrighteous. And yet Christ the righteous died for you. He died in your place. And so the good shepherd has come to give his life for the sheep that are not good sheep. They are ungodly sheep. They are a lost sheep. And to give up his life is the ultimate price especially doing it for sinful people doing it for those who are enemies of God but let us draw some more understanding from this statement because there is a lot that is assumed here by the Lord Jesus why does the shepherd come and extend his care of the sheep even to the point of giving up his life To the point of death on the cross. What is the assumption? Why does the good shepherd come and give up his life? The implicit assumption is that the sheep were in danger. Someone determined to do harm to the sheep. The sheep were lost and being lost they were in the hands of their enemies that sought to devour them their enemies that sought to destroy them. The sheep were held captive to sin, death, and condemnation of the law. And the wrath of God was on them. The sheep were in the hands of the devil doing his bidding just like the rest. And in this condition, the sheep could not help themselves to come out their life was seriously threatened they had been imprisoned for life and for their release for their freedom an exchange had to happen an exchange has to happen and unfortunately the ship themselves have nothing with which to exchange but the medium of exchange or the currency of exchange has been stipulated and guess what it is not donuts or a bag of cherries it is life for life or there's no exchange but the life of the ship is already taken by their captivity they have already lost it they are shut down with no hope So even if they were to die, their death is not enough for exchange. Remember the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross said to Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. The thief on the cross had repented and confessed his sin and said, we are worthy of the judgment that is on us because of our sin. And so he was on the cross and dying with Jesus. And yet being on the cross, his own death was not enough for him. He said to Jesus, Jesus, I see that you are also dying, but you are dying a different kind of death than mine. So remember me, I am now putting my hope not in my own death, but in your death, Jesus. Because I know that you have a better testimony. I know you're going to overcome this. And so when you have entered your kingdom, which means when you have resurrected also, you remember me. Because I know you're going to overcome this. So he saw that his own death was not even enough to exchange life for life. So he had to look to the death of another. So the sheep are shut down. With no hope. They have no means to pay their way out. And that is the condition of all sinners before Christ came. There is no sinner who is capable of availing themselves to Christ unless Christ first comes to them. And so the good shepherd comes and he says in Matthew 20 verse 27 and 28. And whoever desires to be first among you, he was talking to his disciples about servanthood, because they wanted to take the nicer jobs, the nicer places and titles. And Jesus says, and whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as, listen to verse 28, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. So in what manner was Jesus the good shepherd? In what manner did Jesus give his life as the good shepherd? He gave his life not as a martyr. Not as some political activist. Not as some kind of freedom fighter. But he was a freedom fighter in a spiritual sense. He fought for our freedom, but as a ransom for many. But who put men in trouble? Who put men in trouble? Because if we are to understand the work of Christ as the good shepherd, we need to understand to whom Christ is making the payment. And we need to know who put men in trouble. It is sin that put men in trouble. But still the question is, who put man in trouble? It is God who put men in trouble. Romans eleven thirty two, Apostle Paul commenting on the mystery of God's work in Israel and the church. He says, for God has committed them all to disobedience. Apostle Paul was not shy to say things like that. He says, it's God who has committed them to be disobedient. Why, Paul? that he might have mercy on all. It is God who committed all men to disobedience. He ordained it, that he might have mercy on some, because that was his eternal purpose in Christ. Romans 8, 20 to 21. Apostle Paul writes and says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The fall of man into sin was by God's eternal purpose. He subjected his creation to vanity, to futility, to uselessness, but not to the end of vanity, but to the end of the hope of redemption in Christ. Do you see what Apostle Paul said? He said the subjection of man to vanity was not the end in itself. We were subjected to vanity in hope of the redemption that is in Christ. And that is contrary To all the thinking of men who occupy a lot of pulpits. Because it doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense to them because they have a wrong starting point. They are not starting their thinking from the eternal purpose of God in Christ. And that is the God of the Bible. So according to this, the elect fell into the hope of Christ. The fall of Adam for the elect was A step up, not a step down. It was a step up into the redemption and righteousness of Christ. But the non-elect fell down into vanity and it was all by God's doing because it was his eternal purpose. Now that is glorious theology. That is a God who is worthy of all glory and praise. And that's why Apostle Paul would break out in praise and say in Romans eleven thirty three 33 and 36, all the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? or who he has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so the giving of the life of Jesus was what was set for the ransom price. The life of Jesus was the ransom price of salvation. His life Was what was set by God as the price to free his people from vanity, from futility, from shame and condemnation. His life was the ticket into his hope. And what was a ransom price for? When Apostle Paul was using this language, what was he thinking about? A ransom price was the payment price that was paid to set a slave free, that is, to buy back their freedom. And the price that was set was also called the redemption price. And see the context. The ransom price, the redemption price, always assumed an enslavement situation. The one who needed to be redeemed did not have Freedom and they did not have the means to redeem themselves. The price was without their reach. They did not have the means in their captivity situation. It was too costly for them, and sin made everything costly to us. And it is because of sin that we fell into captivity and now the law was given to show us how unaffordable and how unreachable righteousness and life are for one who is in captivity to sin so the law was not given to remove your vanity the law was given to reveal your vanity to manifest it so that we would be led to the hope that is in Christ Jesus. And so this is what is contained in Psalm 49, 6 to 9, where the psalmist says, Those who trust in their worth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. Why? For the redemption of their souls is costly. And it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. Redemption, costly. It's just too exorbitant. Listen to the Lord Jesus Christ echoing the same words of the psalmist in Mark 8, verses 36 and 37. Mark 8, 36 and 7. The Lord Jesus Christ said, For what will it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. Or what will a man give in exchange of his soul? What is the Lord saying? The Lord is saying, the soul of every man is in captivity. And in the light of that, no one has anything in their possession with which to exchange for their own freedom. The Lord Ask the question, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? The gospel is both an accounting and a legal issue. And if we don't look at it from that viewpoint, we will never understand it. The law accounts for sin. And the blood of Christ makes the accounting exchange. The blood of Christ settles the debt. It settles the arrears. The sinner is not 30 days past their due date. They just did not miss one mortgage payment. (laughs) The bankruptcy court has already declared them insolvent. They have nothing. So the gospel is an exchange question. And this part of the teaching is very important to understand. If you understand this part of the teaching, I would have done my work. The gospel is an exchange question, and many do not understand this. What do you have to bring to make an exchange for your soul is the question of the gospel. And we fail to believe or teach the gospel because we do not define the problem correctly. And they say a problem defined is half solved, right? And there's too much nonsense that is called the gospel that does not even begin to answer the question of exchange of value, profit and loss. Jesus said, why shall a man give in exchange? He says, for what will it profit a man that's profit if he gains? that some very good businessman. He gains the whole world. And yet loses his soul. So at the end he has a lost statement. So the gospel is a question of exchange of value. Either resulting in profit or loss. The true gospel says your soul is in captivity to condemnation. And so what shall you give for it to be exchanged to justification? According to Jesus, your soul does not belong to you. That's why it needs to be exchanged. You forfeited it to condemnation because of sin. And that's the starting point of the gospel. And Jesus says, The world and everything in it is not enough. And the money of your brothers, that is, any value that may come from the works of men, is not enough. Your works are not enough. So what are you going to do? Your effort can't even begin to make a dent into the ransom payment. You can't borrow for salvation either. Your credit score is really bad. Since you defaulted on all the payments in the light of the bankruptcy judgment. And so your only option is to receive freely to be justified. And so in that understanding, in that light, work's best salvation is a mockery of Jesus. And preachers need to be serious about this gospel and not play gimmicks. Because we are talking about the life of people and eternity. Work's best salvation is saying, no, Jesus, we have a down payment to make for our own salvation. We have good works to complete the exchange. We have our repentance. We have our faith. No. The exchange that is demanded here is life. It is blood. For without blood, there is no atonement. There is no remission of sin. And not just any blood, but the blood of the sinless Son of God. And this is the blood that God says when I see the blood. When I see the blood of the Passover lamb, I shall pass over you. Why? Because the blood of the Passover lamb is enough for the exchange. Is enough for the exchange. And that is the only thing that God is out looking for. And so the good shepherding of Jesus is in that he sacrificed himself as the ransom payment So as to set his ship free. And so the life of the ship was to be exchanged only by his death. His death was the payment that set the ship free. And if the payment was made and was accepted, then those who were in captivity have to be set free. If the payment was accepted, The ones who were in captivity have to be set free on account of the finished redemption. In Luke 4, verse 18, the Lord Jesus Christ, reading from Isaiah, says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. So in the understanding of Jesus, he would say in John 8.32, And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And in John 8.36, he would say, That again and say, therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So the gospel has to be good news. If we can't bring the good news of the gospel, then we are not preaching the gospel because the gospel of Jesus Christ says payment was made and it was full payment and the ones for whom the payment was made have to be set free if we are following the rules of fair ransom payments. And it is important to note that this term of our salvation or none of our terms were negotiated in bad faith. This was not a negotiation between Jesus and the devil. This was between God the Father and the Son. And this negotiation And this term was set in the eternal counsel and purpose of God. It was set in the eternal covenant, the covenant of grace. And it was set so high that man could not reach it so that none would boast before him. And both God the Father and the Son are holy and righteous, which means if the Son made Complete payment for the setting free of his people, then his people are actually free on account of that payment. If the life of Christ, the blood of Christ, is what was required for the sheep to be set free, that is to be justified, then the sheep of Christ were justified when the ransom payment was made. And let us see if God has taught this somewhere. If you still remember, we taught this a while ago, maybe last year in one of our communion messages about the city of refuge. When a manslayer, one who had killed someone, if someone had killed someone accidentally, they could run to the city of refuge to find refuge from the avenger of blood. And God gave us the rules of the city of refuge. Listen to Numbers 35, 25 to 28. Numbers 35, 25 to 28 says, So the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he had fled and he shall remain there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil so when the man who had accidentally killed someone when they ran and sought refuge in the city of refuge they were to remain there they were to remain in that city and they could not come out of that city until what had happened until the death Of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. And as soon as the high priest was pronounced dead. They were free. As soon as he had the news that the high priest had died. Whichever way he died. They were free. The avenger of blood could not come on him anymore. He was a free man. He could go back into the camp of Israel and be free. Listen to verse 26 to 28. But if the manslayer at any time goes outside the limits of the city of refuge where he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the limits of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. So the manslayer was to remain within the city limits. And the city of refuge was Christ himself. And the high priest who died was Christ Himself. So, the manslayer, you and I are the manslayers who have run and sought refuge in Christ Jesus. And we are only safe if we remain in the city limits. We remain in Christ Jesus. And we have been set free on account of the death of Christ. As soon as Christ said it's finished and He gave up the ghost. You and I were set free from condemnation. Verse 28, because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. So you see, the death of the high priest is the condition of your freedom. So Christ comes and he says, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. <laughs> he says, but after the death of the high priest, the main slayer may return to the land. Of his possession. you are free. you are free. And that is why Apostle Paul would come and say. In Romans 4.25. He was delivered up because of our offenses. And was raised because of our justification. So the death of Christ. Is what justified us. And so if. Jesus made the transaction. Of giving his life. For the life of the sheep. Then the sheep are actually. Saved. There's no other way. There's no other way to spin it. The condition of setting the sheep free was the life or the death or the blood of Christ. And so anyone who conditions the setting free of the sheep on their own payment is not preaching the gospel. They are preaching another gospel. The commands of the gospel are not the ransom payment be nice, love the brethren, be long-suffering, stop doing this and start doing this, put off the deeds of the flesh, those are not the ransom payment. Those are commands in the light of those that have been set free. Do we get the difference? And so the believer cannot be removed from the freedom that Christ already paid for them. The believer cannot be judged again for the same sins that were paid in the ransom price paid by the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't be paid twice for the same sins. There can't be any condemnation on those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the teaching of purgatory is outright false. It's false. And yet the whole Roman Catholic system is built on purgatory. It's impossible. It's impossible to have Christ, the good shepherd, giving his life and still hold to purgatory. It's impossible. It just is not true. It's a false gospel. And so God's eternal purpose in Christ is that he would be the surety of their life. He will be the one to die in their place. And if you still remember, A surety is one who comes and they assume the debt of another and to pay it in full. So if Charlie owes someone $500, I hope Charlie, you don't owe anybody $500. Then I come and I say, since Charlie is not able to pay, I'm going to pay whatever he owes for him. And once I make the payment, is it okay for that person to come asking the $500 again from Charlie? Do you think that makes sense, Charlie? You can't go and ask someone to pay twice something that has already been paid for. The believer is not under condemnation because Christ assumed all the legal payments, all the obligations, all the liabilities for their being set free by his own death. And so the life of Christ is the insurance And the guarantee of our salvation. And that is why he is the good shepherd. And now Jesus did not make the payment. With just some perishable goods. Jesus did not bring some government cheese. And peanut butter. And whatever gallon of milk. The perishable things. He redeemed us by the imperishable. His own blood. As Apostle Peter says in closing 1 Peter to 19 Apostle Peter says And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear why Peter? Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers but with the precious blood of Christ. as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Oh, that's glorious teaching. So that is the nature of the blood that redeemed us. It was of a lamb that was without blemish and without spot. And that what makes it precious. And that means a sinner who possesses that blood, who was purchased by that blood, lose their salvation because it would take someone paying a price that is equal or higher than that Jesus paid to reverse the transaction. Our stock price, as things stand, is so high, it is the highest stock price ever, that no one can afford to buy it. They can't afford to buy us back as to enslave us again. And that is the security of the believer in Christ. And that is why the Lord Jesus Christ will come and say, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And that's what he did. And that's why the gospel is good news. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Dearly Father, Lord, we come before your holy presence again to say, holy, holy. Is your name, O oh Lord, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd of the ship. We thank you for his precious blood, his precious life, and giving it up for our sake. In exchange for our own souls that had been given over to condemnation because of sin. And yet by his one perfect offering, he perfected us forever. And so, Lord, we just thank you for the faithfulness of this one in coming from heaven, in humiliation on the cross, that we may have his righteousness. Lord, we just honor you and we thank you. And we pray for all those that you have granted to hear this message. Lord, we pray that it will go and accomplish the work that you have given it to accomplish. Lord, we honor you we thank you. And we pray all things in Jesus' name. Amen.